boy's got utter belief in it. And somehow she's found the acceleration. Were you not entertained by the 2023 TCS London Marathon? We sure were. Safan Hassan's marathon debut did not start well. She was injured and dropped in the first half, but somehow came back to defeat one of the most stacked fields in history. Meanwhile, Kelvin Kipton destroyed the men's field and destroyed Eli Kipchoge's course record in the process by running the greatest second half in marathon history. Is he the greatest talent we've ever seen in the marathon? Or the latest too good to be true story from, from Kenya? The four by mile world record attempt at the Oregon Relays fizzled at the very start as Matthew Sintritz only managed a 404 mile. Is he done? No Lyles got worked over by a high score. Are his dreams of 100, 200 glory over? Caitlin Tui found out she's not even the best runner in North Carolina. All of that and more on this week's edition of Track Talk. This is Let's Run.com co-founder Robert Johnson and welcoming you to the show. Unlike Facebook, unlike Twitter, unlike Google, we want to hear from you. Pick up the phone, 844-LET'S-RUN. That's 844-538-7786. I'm joined as always by my genetic equal, but much faster twin brother, Weldon Johnson as well as a staff writer, Jonathan Galt, the hardest working man in journalism. Someone has to work weekends. Someone has to fly to London, Australia. And it's Jonathan. How is everybody? It's a fun weekend running-wise. Some other events over the weekend were not quite as fun, but you don't need to talk about them unless you want to at the end of the show. But Robert, I don't know if I would say I'm the hardest working man. I work hard, but there are a lot of journalists who work hard. These baseball reporters who go to like 100 plus games a year, I'm pretty, I think that's kind of tough. I respect them, but and I also respect you for getting up early on Sunday morning and watching this thing. I can wake up and the race in London is going off at 9.25 a.m. local time once I've got over the time difference. You have to get up at 5.30 or I don't know. You were you were up and watching the end of these races on TV. So that's an early wake-up call on a Sunday morning for you. And you've got a young kid. So I just want to say I work hard, but I'm not the only one. So respect. Wow. Is this a subtle dig, Robert, John? It's like when Michael Johnson sort of put point something out on Twitter and it's underhand compliment. Am I getting a little clap back for not waking up early on Sunday? No, when we've got two people already working and you've got even an even younger kid than Robert, I, I didn't mean to snub you, Weldon. I just want to share credit where credit's due. In all fairness, John, my wife and I, we're watching local news for some reason. ABC seven in New York. What do they throw up there? London marathon highlights. I'd never been more shocked in my life. They spelled Safan Hassan's name wrong, but they had highlights. We're praising her for winning. And my wife said, the London marathon was today. And I'm like, yeah, she's like, why didn't you wake up early and watch it? So I've been called out on my very own. I, You guys handled it wonderfully. I had a commitment of my own Sunday morning. Had to get to you know, over 40 soccer, very important. 
First loss of the season. Is it your first game of the season? Isn't this the team that didn't win any games last year? Yes, we tied one game last year only, but we started off the season with a tie. Only lost this one by one. Things are looking up. Things are looking up this year in Connecticut. Connecticut is, we're, it's just, it's where all great sports are right now. NCAA men's basketball champion. Quinnipiac, the NCAA hockey champion. Do you guys know that? I mean, we're dominating all the winter sports here. Well, congrats to the Nutmeg State. Let's talk about running. This London Marathon was absolutely fantastic. I've covered four of them in person, watched a bunch more online early morning from the US. I think this was the most fun London Marathon I can ever remember. They've had some great moments there for sure. I remember Kipchoge dueling with Stanley B. Watt in 2016, dueling with Wilson Kipsang and Dennis Cometo in 2015. We have Mary Katani going out suicidal pace in 2017. But between Hassan and the women's race and her epic comeback and Kelvin Kiptum's 201.25 with his 59.45 second half on the men's side, this may have been the best London Marathon ever. And what I really like about it is Boston is great in its own way. Boston, you're racing the course, and that's part of the appeal. Anything can happen there. Whereas London, generally their formula is put a ton of studs on the line together and special things will happen, and that's what happened today. Or that's what happened on Sunday. Robert, can you remember a more fun London Marathon well, I have the memory of a goldfish, and so that's a tough question. But I'm starting to worry, John. You know, they, they keep, tell the journalists to keep a professional distance, but I almost would want to think that Jonathan Gold has a crush on Stefan Hassan. Not romantic, but he's just, he was so gaga over this performance. It was kind of inspiring. I guess I'll, I'll take people through my Sunday morning. Robert, I don't know if you've been living under a rock. The entire world was fascinated by this performance. It was a front page story in The Guardian. I was getting on the plane at the airport on Monday. The front page, not the sports section, the front page of the entire paper was a picture of Safan Hassan. Everyone on the running internet seems amazed by this. My sister texted me after she saw the result. She said, Safan Hassan is incredible. She didn't say, Kelvin Kipton, wow, he's really fast. This was a big deal. I, I'm kind of surprised you're not as amazed by it as I am, or maybe you're just more amazed by Kelvin Kipton, which, again, what he did was also phenomenal. Well, we'll get to that and what you said about him in a minute. Don't, 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 don't think you're going to skirt out of that one. But, no, I woke up around 5.50, so I guess the women were just past halfway, but by, by the time I got my VPN and my second monitor working, I really need an assistant to come by at like 4.30 to get everything going. The men were already past halfway. And I, I think I went to the Let's Run. We have the live discussion forum, which is the, but then we also now have a live event page where John's putting updates. And you did a good job of like keeping me updated on what was going on. I saw that Hassan had been dropped, had stretched her leg, and I was watching her live, and she was like grimacing. And... I immediately, this is something I'm going to write in the week that was, if I ever actually publish it. But I, I just thought, like, I don't know. Sometimes I'm cynical, like, oh, people are just going 
they're just, they're just staying in so they can get, you know, a lot of times if you drop out before 30K, you don't get paid or whatever, or get reduced. I never thought that. I thought, wow, this is refreshing. Like this super accomplished woman is just, she just loves challenges. She just loves to run. She just loves to compete. Isn't that refreshing? But then I thought like, is this smart? She might injure herself and ruin her track season. And then somehow Probably. an hour later, she's the champion. I mean, she catches up to the lead group or she almost catches up. She's like one second behind them. And then they take off again. So she's basically dropped twice, catches them again. But at no point did I think, oh, she's going to win this race. Oh, I did. When she got them with about 5K to go, I was like, if they don't get rid of her by the mal, it's she's going to win. So she, she catches up. And I did think to myself, wow, I wish I had bet on her last night. It would be fun to have her at 14 to 1. But I remember thinking, okay, she's caught up. But when they start dropping sub five minute miles, she's going to, you know, see something that she's never seen before. And in case you weren't, don't remember, last year, Y squared, Yellow Reserve, Yellowhaw. Ran a 459 24th mile and a 502 25th mile. And I don't think we really were being told this on the commentary while it was happening. The BBC's commentary is so much better than the Boston commentary. It's hard to complain about it, but I still think all these marathons need me in the booth because you should be giving people the mile by mile splits. They just never did that. There was never a move made. There was a brief move made by the like, there was four or five people in the lead pack. And the one I'd never heard of, John Magetsu or somebody, makes a brief move. like, And Y-square gets dropped. And I'm like, wow, that's I didn't expect that to happen. But the, the pacing was getting slower and slower. Like, I wrote, it was an almost inconceivable 539 for mile 25. So 220 pace is 520. We didn't know this at the time, but mile 26 was an inconceivable time. It was 5.56. So, like, are we sure those are right? I'm I'm not sure because remember last year, Yahalor, initially it was reported as like a 4.43 and then it turns out to be a 4.59. But this one, okay, well then, even if that one's off, the mile before it is reported as 5.39. There aren't any other miles that look like exceedingly fast that offset an exceedingly slow mile. But I'm still grappling for some sort of explanation because 556 in the penultimate mile or the 26th mile of what has been proclaimed the greatest women's marathon field ever assembled. I know it was wet, but I can't understand how they were running that slow. It, It doesn't make any sense to me. We need to reach out to Helmut Winter, who helped us last year with the mile splits, see if they were and they inaccurately reported. But yeah, it, it was mind bogging. And they were getting ready for the sprint. And I remember thinking, oh, this is so good because we're finally going to have, when it comes down to a sprint, it's always bothered me um, when the commentators say, who has the most speed? And I'm like, no, they should really be saying, who has the most speed left in the tank? But so I thought we were going to have the ultimate decision of this. Does the mile world record for Safana Stefan get out kicked? And I kind of wanted it to happen like when they're at mile 25, just so that I could basically 
crow about this on the podcast on Tuesday, you know, about how these commentators know what they're talking about. That but doesn't I'm, sound like something you'd do. No, no, of course not. And then I think I kept thinking this live. I'm like, okay, they just waited to the 26 mile mark. At this point, if you wait to the 26 mile mark, like without hammering it down, I, I think that we know who's going to win. And Hassan did run it. She ran the final 385 yards in 62 seconds. If that's right, that's 70.4 400-meter pace. But if I told you before the race, after a 68.30, that four women would hit 40K in 218 pace, I don't think anyone would have believed me in their wildest dreams that if you average 535, we know this is true, they average 535 mile pace from 40K to the finish, you'd win by four seconds. Robert, do you have a theory on this though? Because I wrote in my recap for one of my quick takes, I said, this may have just been an enormous strategic error. They're just letting it hang around. And obviously, even though it's at the end of the marathon, I wouldn't want to have Sifanis on there. If I would try to, make a move to drop them? Or do you just think they were all exhausted and that the conditions... I mean, even in the men's race, we saw everyone apart from Kelvin Kipton slowed down in the second half. But he was running... You know, he smashed the course record by over a minute. Like, why do you think they were running so slow? Do you have a theory? Were they just exhausted? I think they were tired. And it's stunning to me that all of them were running so, quote-unquote, poorly. But I, I think that there's something about... I know it's not 35. There's nothing worse in the world, I've always said this, than running in 35-degree weather when it's raining. I mean, you just get drenched and you get hypothermic and you could die. I mean, I felt like one time in Ithaca I was going to die. And we saw Des London. That's how she won her marathon. The, the weather but it was really low 50s. Years. It wasn't 35. No, here it was like 50. It wasn't that cold. But in Boston, we saw it. Most of the, well, the women picked it up, though. I don't know. Maybe they're hitting the wall. Like They're, they're so thin. They get cold. and I don't know. That's what makes the men's race all the more mind-blowing because – Everybody in this race was slowing down, women and men, except for Calvin Kipton, who was running the greatest half marathon of any marathon in history, 59.45. So I just think somehow they were all tired. It does happen. We got to remember these athletes, we look at them as superhumans and we assume, oh, they should always be able to close. They still get tired at the end of the marathon. Even Calvin Kipton, who looked superhuman, you could tell the last kilometer or two, he did actually start to look tired. This does happen. Didn't to me. With, oh, he looked tired to me. He didn't look tired until about 41K. But at that point, when he started really sprinting, I think when he realized maybe the world record was possible, that's when he finally looked tired. But it does happen. Even to the best of the world, even when you're near the front of a major marathon, you can get tired. It, it's, it is okay if that happens. But it was really cool. Hassan takes off. No one comes with her. She went. She puts her arms out. I mean, she just, I'm like, I'm tingling just thinking about it. I'm like, honey, you deserve that. Like, just enjoy. I mean, you get dropped. You catch up. The tortoise beats the hair. Uh, it's just amazing. Well, also, so Robin, I'm, we didn't mention she almost got taken out by the one of the lead motorcycles at 40K. Like, the, the amount of things that Hassan, I mean, I've written about this in our recaps and our pre-meet events, but her coach, Tim Robry, I spoke to him on Friday. He said, he just came out and said, quite frankly, she's not ready to run with these top women. You know, he was like, she, she's in better 5K, 10K shape right now. We didn't train specifically for the marathon. She's just going to give it a go. He didn't say anything about this 
quad issue that she developed 10 days before the race and then forgot to tape up on the morning of the race and then had to stop multiple times to stretch during the race. Which at this point, Robert, you weren't the only one thinking she should drop out. Steve Cram and Paula Radcliffe on the BBC broadcast are essentially saying she should probably drop out here. This might be an issue for the same reason you said. She wants to run a track season. If you're not going to win this race, why bother hanging around and just getting smoked? Because I don't think she's doing it for the money. Obviously, she knew better than we did at that point, but I was thinking the same thing. I watched the race. I was like, yes, she. there's no way she's going to hang on. This is going to have a happy ending, except it's a fun aside, and she does things that, frankly, no one else on the women's side of this sport can do, and that's why she's so amazing to watch. But yeah, then the 40K, she essentially blamed this on not having practiced drinks because remember the last month of her prep was done during Ramadan. So she's fasting during the days. There is, there are some exceptions. I think with, if you're in a medical emergency or something, you can take water. Her coach told me she did drink once or twice, I think during Ramadan during the day, but in general, she's working out at 10 AM and then gets no fluids or food until the evening. And 40 K she sees, Perez Jepchirchir drifting over to the right side of the road. They're almost past this drink station. At that point, you don't even need the drink. There's 2K to go. You really should just focus on racing. But she saw Jepchirchir. She's like, oh, I guess I need to get my drink too. She makes essentially a 90-degree right turn, just avoids the motorcycle by about three feet, grabs her drink, goes back to the other side of the road, and then kicks it in. It's just the, the amount of things that should have derailed her marathon both before the race and during the race. It's probably half a dozen. And somehow she was the winner over a completely stacked field. And a woman, Perez Jepchirchir, doesn't lose marathons. This woman, the Olympic champ, New York champ, Boston champ, had won five straight major mar- big marathons. And Hassan hands her her first L outside of Kenya. The whole, it's just, it's one of the coolest stories I can remember covering at a major marathon. It's nuts. We need a video of this drink thing because that made the local news as well, but they didn't show it. So I will search for a link. There, there's a video. A- on, I've seen it on Twitter. I've seen the clip. Okay. And did someone get taken out by a wheelchair in wheelchair once in London? Tiki Galana, I think it was 2013, right? And that's when I think they ended up moving the wheelchair starts forward in a lot of world marathon majors because they didn't want them on the course at the same time as the elites. She was the Olympic champion at the time, Tiki Galana. And she never ran well after that. So the lawsuit could be worth millions. I mean, you can't prove that it caused it. But speaking of wheelchairs, this is not politically correct. I don't want to be an ableist, but I don't like wheelchair racing being on my marathon. I guess. Did they not have a, a wheelchair race in, in the BBC? I mean, in London, because thankfully I didn't see it at all on my BBC broadcast. Or did I? Was it already over before I? Got well, started you watching? woke up when it was over. They showed some of it. Okay, but big picture, this thing is nuts. Thanks to everyone who actually signed up for the supporters club on Saturday, we gave you guys a free preview of the women's portion of the London Marathon preview podcast and a bunch of you guys signed up to listen to the men's thank you all the new supporters club members if you want a second podcast every week sign up today let's run.com slash subscribe and john on that podcast we all were like 
there's no way she can win this race. She's not going to win this race. Well, this was a rare instance where I think being there hurt us. Like, we thought she wasn't going to win because her coach said she wasn't in shape. And we also thought, like, okay, a 156, 800 runner, normally the, the mile world record holder is not going to be dominant over the best woman in the world in the marathon. So the range had to stop, and her coach said it. But if we had, if the coach hadn't been so negative, I, would we have totally ruled it out? I mean, I was adamant that she was going to run with the lead pack and was very happy about that. Oh, I knew she'd run with the leaders. She's that competitive. You knew she would be up there. But And if I had known that she, if her coach had told me or she had told me like, hey, yeah, training went great, I would have at least maybe given her an outside shot. I still wouldn't. No way in hell would I have picked her for the win. But Weldon, that's what makes this story so incredible is she didn't go into this race thinking she was in great, ready to run a great marathon. And maybe if it was perfect conditions and it's a 215 216 race like we were seeing these world marathon majors run last year maybe she's not able to do that but 218 33 was the winning time still not slow but you got to remember back you know if we subtract the super shoes that's probably what a 221 222 would be five or six years ago it's nothing insanely fast and that allowed her to be in striking distance so I think the conditions here did kind of help put her in contention. I, I don't think she would have the 215 or 216 fitness necessary to win. Yeah, the way the race played out is bizarre. But Robert, regardless of what Tim Robbery said, I wasn't picking her to win this race to beat this field. We knew she wasn't doing full-fledged marathon training, and she had to train the every day until the last three with Ramadan. I would have factored that in. No way she wins. Here's what we said on that podcast. But it could be some epic. If she pulls this thing off somehow, oh my God. Go right away. Just go. She, I, I think she'd own it, right? If she yeah. won, if she beat this field in the London Marathon, I think we'd have to say she's the best female distance runner we've ever seen. So I present the question to you guys. We were... We were posing this question before we knew she would actually win the race while stopping and falling 30 seconds behind. But is this the greatest female distance runner we've ever seen? It's a tough question because I feel like this this question is not discussed as much as it is on the men's side. And I'm not even sure we have a clear answer before the race. Was it Tiranesh Dababa? Do you go further back? Someone like Greta Weitz, where the times aren't as competitive, but they're breaking world records. I mean, who before this race, who would you have considered the women's goat, Robert? I think I would have gone to Barber, but I wouldn't have been like, oh, it, she's clearly the answer. I guess since, or at least since Let's Rama was founded, it's got to be Dababa, right? What, three Olympic golds? Three other Olympic medals? Two world cross-country titles? No, four, she's got four world cross-country titles. One of those is the short race. Five-time world champ on the track. She's got a 217.56 marathon PB. That was 2017 London, so not sure if she had the super shoes at that point or not. One major win in that event, 2017 Chicago. I mean, if you look at just sort of major victories, she has more than Hassan. Hassan's a two-time Olympic gold medalist, two-time world champion on the track. Has never medaled at world cross. World Indoor Champ in the 1600. World Records in the mile. 
10K since broken. Dababa used to have the 5K world record. And she's got the London Marathon victory now. In terms of like just resume, maybe yeah, maybe you would say Dababa still, but I, I just think Hassan, some of these moments winning this London Marathon, that's that would be a career defining moment for a lot of athletes. The double Olympic gold plus the fifteen hundred bronze in Tokyo, that I think is the greatest achievement in the history of women's distance running. Then her 5K, 10K in Doha in 2019. I mean, the way I think of it, I put this in our recap, was she was up against Perez Jipchirchir in this race, who was a dominant marathoner. Had won five straight big-time marathons, including Valencia, the Olympics, Boston, and New York. And Hassan ends that streak. She's the first one to beat her in a major international marathon. Whereas on the track... The GOAT 1500 runner of all time, the GOAT 1500 runner on the women's side is Faith Kipugon, who has won five of the last six global titles in that event. The only woman to beat her at a global championship since then, Safan Hassan. So she's beating the best ever in the mile, and she's also beating one of the best ever in the marathon. I don't know. I, I think just some of, some of this these achievements she has, like these moments of glory. I, I, I think I'm maybe I, maybe I'm just biased recency bias here, but I think I might lean Hassan with how great she's been at some of these big time championships. You're also missing. I mean, in 2019, when she did the 15, 10 double, well, yes, yeah, she be, she front ran the three fifty one to beat Kipiego, right? Negative split of that one. Right. But now Kipiegan wasn't Pete Kipiegan. She was coming back from pregnancy, right? True, but she still ran like 353 in the race. But then in the 10,000, she closed in 359 to beat Ayana, who's now the world record holder in the five. No, Gaudet, I mean, who's now the world record holder. Yeah. And then two years later in Tokyo, after Gaudet broke Hassan's world record, she essentially did the same thing and dusted her in the 10K final. It's either her or Dababa, but I, th there's more. I do think Hassan benefits also from joining the Oregon Project. We as Westerners became more indoor. There's a little bit, the internet now is more advanced, so we're kind of like following her life, her career as it happens. Ethiopians, I mean, Dababa doesn't really speak English as well, right, and stuff like that. So, What I love about Hassan is that she does what we ask of all our great athletes, which is she continually tests herself and challenges herself. She's not content to just become the 1,500-meter world champion or the 10K world champion and run that event for five or six years. And Hassan, was, that's what Dababa was doing in the 5K, 10K. She'd run the 10K every time and she'd usually win it. And I don't have a real problem with that, but Hassan always looks for the next thing. She says, okay, I've done this. Now what can I do next? And that's what leads her to running the 1510 k at Worlds. That's what leads her to running the triple in Tokyo. That's what leads her to making her marathon debut against the most stacked field in history and then winning it. She's always looking for something else. I saw an, on an NBC Olympic talk today, there's now talk about her trying the Zardopec in Paris, 5K, 10K marathon. So 
I, I, would I put that past her? No, because that's what she loves to do. So it's just really exciting to follow that. I appreciate that she's setting herself these new, new crazy things that no one thinks she co- can accomplish, and then she does. Hassan's done like totally unprecedented stuff in the sport. I mean, the triple, then winning this marathon. I mean, I can't believe she beat Kibye Gun in a 1500, but. As Robert pointed out, she was coming back from pregnancy. But her time at the top has been briefer. It's now coming up on four years. Dababa won a gold in 2003, won another one in 2012. She's actually a year younger than Kipchoge. Do you guys realize that? Almost exactly a year younger. And, hey, she raced this weekend. Chernish Dababa. At the Gifu Half Marathon in Gifu, Japan. Third place, 69.57. Well, improvement on Houston earlier this year. But I, I would say, yeah, maybe Hassan needs another year or two to accrue counting stats. Yeah, but if she wins, like, yeah, I think if she wins another couple gold medals, you could say that. But well, then, like, the thing is, this London Marathon accomplishment, it's just this versatility. She's certainly the most versatile athlete we've ever seen on the women's side. I would say probably men's side too, right? we ever seen someone with the range of Hassan, 156 for 800, London Marathon champion over a stacked field, beating Kipigon in the 1500, and she's Olympic gold in the 5 and 10? It's unprecedented, right? Yes. I mean, we're, we're seeing, though, we're seeing, like, what, Tijis Asepa, 800 runner and marathon runner? Like, we're seeing this new range on the women's side. Yeah, Gazebe Debaba actually has a faster marathon and faster fifteen hundred PB than Safan Hassan. She doesn't have the eight hundred. Anyways, the women's race ends. John texts me splash page. So, thanks to Eric, our web guy, we were I was we now have ability to put up a splash page really quickly. So I had a screenshot. I put that up, and then we have the live blog, so I don't have to worry about updating the homepage while we can write our recaps and stuff. And I'm getting back to like. Oh, so I was pausing the race to take the screenshots and stuff. So I'm not sure what the commentary is doing. I think they're actually focused on like women's interviews and stuff. But anyways, I I, I go back live to the men's race, and I don't know who the BBC commentator was. John, was it Steve Cram or? They had Steve Cram and Paula Radcliffe from what I was hearing. Yeah. I, I hear him say something like, I mean, I knew Kipton had just blown the field open. But I didn't even actually... Oh, they kind of missed the move, right? Forgot what they were doing. Yet another race where they missed the move. Like, they missed him breaking clear. But I hear Cram say, like... Now, there's a possibility here, if he keeps going, that the world record could fall. And there was really no context provided. There was no concept of, like... I don't remember them saying, like, he needs a... 420 last mile, or he needs uh, this or that. It was just like this. And I was like, what? Because, again, I turned it on halfway. I don't even think I noticed the split. It was 6140. So they ran 6140 at halfway. So that's 20 pace. The world record is 20109. To run, I mean, you're not even, the world record is basically impossible. You'd have to run a 59. Twenty nine, yeah, twenty eight to beat the world record. So, my brain was having a hard time computing this. 
And then I was going to try to figure out like what he needed and go to the split site and convert it from kilometers to mile. And then I realized he's in the last mile. I don't have time to do this. And I'm like, okay, there's a 600 meter mark. Let's look at that. And they go by the 600 meter mark. And I looked down at my watch and it was near 201. I mean, it was near um, two minutes. And I'm like, okay, he can't do that. And then, but then Paula Radcliffe says like, clearly, surely he can do it now. And I'm like, no, that's wrong. Immediately, I thought that's wrong. She thinks the world record is 201.39. I remember thinking that. And I was right. She got the times wrong. Cram realized it. But I just watched him run the last 600. And it reminded me, I don't know if you ever watched this Holly Gabrasolesi movie I think Disney put out back in the day. It called Endurance. The opening scene is just him sprinting across the savannah in Africa with music. And it was just beautiful to watch. And I'm just watching this guy sprint down the mall or whatever it's called. The Mal. The Mal. It's pronounced Mal. Mal. It was like, it was just awesome to watch. Like this guy looked like he was sprinting. He looked like he was just, it reminded me a little bit of a song, like just challenging himself. Like I wondered, it's not like they had a, a pace projector on the car, is it? Did someone tell him you could get the world record? It just looked like he wanted to max out. I was just like, this guy is just crushing it. And he was just going so fast. And I'm like, go, dude, go. Like, I don't know. Maybe he thinks. Then I'm like, well, could it be one of these cases where like, Bekele just misses it? Like, maybe he doesn't know that he needs to go faster. But no, he looked all out. And then he collapses on the ground. I'm like, oh, that guy actually looks tired when he, when he wins. But he had plenty of time to lie on the ground and, get, and then get up and celebrate before the next finisher finishes. Jeffrey Camor, former world half, world cross country champion. Ran a great race, a minute PB, and he was almost three minutes back. And that all came in the last 12 kilometers. It's crazy. I saw these splits, and here is how he goes. Starting mile 19, 433, 423, 427, 431, 432, 423, 431. And then finally, mile 26, he slows down a little bit with a 445. But I saw the first 423. I'm like, wow, that's it. He broke the field. It's over. He's just going to coast from here. And then, no, he responds with a 427. From 30 to 35K, he split 1349. I, the only time I can remember a faster 5K split was 2018 in London when they hammered that downhill section. It was Farrer and, Mo, and uh, Elliot Kipchoge. And that one they ran in 1348. To the, correct me if I'm wrong, I can't remember a faster 5K segment than that. This one was only one second slower. He did it by himself without pacemakers, 30K in, and it wasn't downhill. It wasn't crazy downhill. So, might have been the greatest 5K segment we've ever seen in a marathon. It was certainly the greatest second half we've ever seen in a marathon. This remember in Valencia last year, he closed in 60:15 which was previously the fastest second half we've ever seen. This one, he it's blows not, that out of the way, water by half, by 30 seconds. It's not the greatest second half. It's just the greatest half period, first or second half. This is what I wrote in the week that was. At 30K, there were seven guys within 10 seconds of the lead. At 40K, only Cam War was within two minutes. At the finish, the Cam War was the only guy within three minutes. Between 30K and 40K, he clocked 27.50. Yes, 27.50. Camor was the only guy in the field who could break 30 minutes. He ran 29.40. Now, up to 30K, they've been averaging 29.07 pace. So everybody else blows up. They go from 29.07 pace to over 30 minutes. He runs 27.40. World champ Chamber Toll ran 
No one said this. Making it all the more impressive is that for most of that time, Kipton was running into the wind. Weather Underground says the wind was coming out of the west, southwest and west at six miles per hour, and the London course from 30K to 40K moves about four miles to the west. On the cool and wet day, everyone in the elite men's and women's field were crawling home except for Kipton, who was flying. When it was all said and done, his second half was the greatest half marathon ever run in 26.2 miles, including Kipchoge's sub two attempts, 59.45. From 30K to the finish, he ran the final 12.195 kilometers in 34.02. That's 58.45 half marathon pace. That's 428.9 mile pace. He's going sub nine miles, two miles, all the way home, stacking them. I mean, it's better than Weldon's 10K PB. It's 430 pace. Ridiculous. He beat Kipchoge's course record by more than a minute. Now, here we get to the point here. This is what I wrote. Now that it's over and he's run two marathons, both in the 201s, recording the fastest second halves ever in both races, I think there can only be two possible conclusions that someone can have about Kipton. Kipton is either the greatest natural talent we've ever seen to the mar- move to the marathon in his prime, or he's doping. Many people on the Let's Run Forum, even after Valencia, even just after Valencia and before London, were defaulting to the doping accusations. And this weekend, I got to admit, the races end. I'm on the phone with somebody on our staff. And how should we break up the coverage? What should we do? They said, I'll write the women's recap. I said, what about the men's recap? That was wild. That's the actually better performance. And they said, I don't trust it. Okay, Robert's not doing a very good job of hiding identities here. But look, there are two, there were two crazy performances over the weekend. And I think if you were to ask which one is more believable, Hassan or Kiptum, if I, you know, if you put a gun to my head, who do I think is more likely to be clean. I'm going with Hassan. What do you guys say? Yes, of course. J- this is just the reality of the sport. We don't know if Kelvin Kipton is doping. I hope he's not. And the one thing I've always said of the sport is like, you can't just condemn a performance because it it's, doesn't pass the sniff test. But if anything doesn't pass the sniff test, it's this one. This is like groundbreaking performance. We've seen Kipchoge doing this stuff. This is a whole nother level. This was way more impressive to me than Kipchoge's stuff. Like this guy, I think, could break, come close to two hours on a flat course. This was a more impressive run to me than Kipchoge's time. Now, having said that, Kipchoge has passed his prime, and he still broke the world record last fall. Kinesi Bekele way past his prime. How do you know Kipchoge's past his prime? He destroyed everyone at the 2021 Olympic Marathon. And then he runs 202 in Tokyo, and then he runs 201.09 in Berlin. I don't think you can just say, oh, he's worse than he was before that. I think he was in his prime in 21 and 22. I think he was better before that, John. He, this is the guy who was like winning world titles on the track at 2003. There's something about age and physical fitness and whatnot. I don't, I'm sure the endurance builds up over your life. But I don't think peak Ilya Kipchoge in the marathon occurred in the fall of 2022. I mean, he won the 2021 Olympics more than he won the 2016 Olympics by. Look, okay, fine. And 
Kenesi Bekele, 2019, ran a 201.41. That guy pulled that one out of his ass. So could a guy with super shoes, maybe he's perfectly primed for these super shoes, run a lot faster than that? Yes. But this performance, the 59.45, it's something we've never seen in the marathon. Yes, you're correct by that. And that's why, look, I don't like to sit, have suspicions about people simply because of times they run. I don't, I don't think that's really fair to athletes. But I will say, when you are running something that is so much better than everyone else, like three minutes over the last 12 kilometers better than everyone else, 59.45 when no one else has closed their second half faster than 60 30. And the, the guy who did that was Ellie Kipchoge, who's the greatest marathoner anyone's ever seen. When you're doing stuff that is so much better than everyone else, and you're also essentially coming out of nowhere. Okay, he did run 58-42 back in 2020 when he was 19 years old at the time. So that's a really, sorry, he was 20 years old at the time. That's a really fast performance at a very young age. But Let's be honest here. No one knew Kelvin Kittum's name six months ago on the in the wider running world. And now he's run two, the two fastest second halves in history, these crazy fast times. And then the other thing is, again, I don't always want to... There is, to be clear, there is no evidence here linking him to performance-enhancing drugs whatsoever. But his agent, Mark Korshjens, has had a number of high-profile clients serve bans for doping or whereabouts failures. He was the agent of Ruth Jabet, who was the 2016 Olympic champion in the steeple, banned for EPO. Also the agent of Eunice Kiwa, the 2016 Olympic marathon silver medalist, banned for EPO. Kippy Bet, EPO. Alfred Kipikata and Albert, Albert Ropp, whereabouts failures. Again, this is... Kiptum claims to be self-coach, so he's in a different group than these athletes, but his management also doesn't have the, the cleanest record. I can't come out. I'm just saying like, this, this is going by my smell test here, but I, I, there, I have some doubts, I would say, based on just how much of an outlier what he's done in his two marathons are. Now, I know some people are mad that we're discussing this, but to me, this is the best part about what's wrong. We're going to tell you the truth. These are the type of discussions we're having. We might as well have them publicly. Although World Athletics doesn't like it when we do this, but I think the average fan is, if they know anything about the sport, is wondering these things. Yeah, again, this guy, he's he's never tested positive, never been linked to performance enhancing drugs. We can't stress that enough. But people are having these discussions. It's just obviously, if you see a performance like this and you don't wonder about it, there's something wrong with you. This is the shadow on the sport. Can I still watch this and say, wow, that's amazing? Yes. We don't know. And that's why we need more stringent drug testing. I want Kelvin Kiptum out there showing people why he's clean. I want his agent to say the exact same thing. Because I hope to God he's clean because this this is a, a new generation of marathoning. Like, I thought, oh, wow, we'll never be able to replace Kipchoge anytime soon. Well, we already have. Exit right, Elliot. Yeah, and I posted a lot about this. Well, my whole recap on the forum was about comparing Kipchoge to Federer. When Federer came on the scene, no one could be better. If Federer at his peak was not as good as Djokovic or Nadal, he's got a losing record against both of them. 
the, I think we all agree this performance in London by Kipton would have been a world record if it was in Berlin. But and I, there's a great thread which is more suspicious, Stefan Hassan or Gal Kipton. By the way, Stefan Hassan, I mean, let's let's get that out there now. She did rise to prominence, her biggest prominence on the track by training under a coach is now banned for life, not for doping, but was banned for four years for doping, Alberto Salazar, despite being a, what, Dutch citizen. She often trains in third world countries, which makes people suspicious. I know she's from that third world country, but anyways. The thing I would say about Hassan is, yes, you absolutely have to note she was a member of the Oregon Project for four years, but I would, I would say, and she was world-class before she got there, but then she did reach another level. What I would also say, though, is Salazar stopped coaching her in 2019, and I would argue the greatest performances of her career, the Olympic triple in 2021, came after she left the Oregon Project. And Robert, you have said in the past, you're always like, no one talks about Mo Farah and Galen Rupp being tied to Alberto and this sort of stuff. And look, they when they left Alberto, they weren't as good anymore. She's been better since she stopped being coached by Alberto. Do you give her any credit for that or, no, or not? Well, you can play it both ways, you know, and I like to play it both ways. But first of all, Mo, it could have been just Mo and them were getting older. Maybe it wasn't. Of course, of course. But John, are you aware of who she is coached by? Tim Robery, who is... If you're going to be suspected, she's being coached by Alberto's right-hand man, the assistant coach. So I, if, it, if it was a dope... Right-hand man? No, he was like third on the totem pole, but he basically replaced Pete Julian, right? He was his assistant. He was Alberto's assistant for 2019, I think, once Pete Julian left. But if you're a negative person and think it was a doping group, which I don't think it was hardcore doping, at least until, except for maybe the very, very top, wouldn't he know how to do it or wouldn't she know how to do it? Look, I, I don't think that's the case with her. There's a great threat, which is more suspicious, Sassan's or Kiptum's. I said my, my post got 54 upvotes, one downvote. By the way, if you're a supporters club member, you can follow the post so you know this. Hassan looked human. She was struggling. She was everyone was slowing down. Kipton did not. But well, you know, Walton said it. Like Bikili ran 201.41 at 37. That's the same age Kip Choki ran his world record. Shouldn't someone who moves to the marathon in their prime in their 20s be able to run faster? Yes. And I think one of the reasons that there's more suspicion regarding Kipton is that he came out of quote unquote came out of nowhere. You use that yourself, John. I don't really think that's true. The difference is unlike. Elliot Kipchoge and Sammy Wenger, who are the two greatest marathon talents I've ever seen run before Kipton. Kipton just didn't have a track career. He started out on the roads, 59-54 at 19, 58-54 just four days after his 21st birthday, so basically 20. And he ran sub-60, you know, 20, twice in 2019-2020-21. That's not amazing. The difference is Kipchoge and Wenger were like phenoms on the track in their teens. I mean, Kipchoge took down Bakile and Elgar. Oh, and Bakile too was a phenom on the track. Kipchoge won the world at age 18 and 12.52. He ran 12.45 at age 19. This is crazy. When Drew, do you guys remember this? John's always suspicious of what people run when they're 15. He always says Jacob Caplimo didn't run that 27. What did he run? 27.26 at age 15, officially, for Caplimo. Oh, oh. When Drew wasn't that close, quite that best. When Drew went to the 20, 2008 Olympics and just hot marathon, just crushed it. Just attacked the marathon like we'd never seen anyone. He moved to the marathon like we'd never seen. I mean, he was a track phenom. Age 15, 28, 36 for 10,000. I can believe that. For 
his talent, yeah. 28 20 at 16, 28 flat at 17, 26 41 at 18. So he was already known as a huge, huge talent. Then he, he based in Japan, moves up to the marathon and just destroyed it. So it's fascinating. I love this show. The thing that I wrote was also like, let me jump in because I saw your post. The whole drugs thing doesn't explain this either. Because some people are like, oh, everybody's on drugs. If everybody's on drugs, how is this guy so much better than everybody else? And if this is the only guy on drugs, why isn't everybody on this drug? You know what I'm saying? Like, drugs is never, oh, the performance stands out. He must be on drugs. We don't know that. And you have to give him the benefit of the doubt. That's how the sport works. You can have questions in the back of your head. But even from a logical standpoint, for all these people, like everyone's on drugs. Well, this refutes that. If they then they want to say, fine, he's only on drugs. Fine, say that. Then you can't say all these other guys are on drugs. But if they're all on drugs, I can't. Whatever, I'm losing. No, well then, look, you you're making a good point here. Even if Calvin Kipton was on drugs and Jeffrey Campbell was not, that doesn't explain the three minute gap. You still have to be incredible. Calvin Kipton, either way, incredibly talented athlete. That there's no drug that you're just going to take that's going to make you that much better than everyone else. So. And I think, Robert, I agree with your other point. Let's say Jacob Gablimo went to the marathon right now. Could he be competitive with Kelvin Kipta? Maybe he could. Maybe he. Maybe these guys are even more talented than Kipchoge, which is something I didn't think I'd be saying last week. But maybe that is the case. Maybe they, they are just crazy, crazy talent. And Kipchoge isn't the generational athlete. Well... I mean, Kipchoge is still a generational athlete. You don't have that level of consistency, but maybe his peak is attainable by other athletes in a way that maybe we didn't think of recently. I still think it'll be, I mean, might be 20 or 30 years until we see someone who has the consistent run of success that Kipchoge just had from 2013 to 2023. But in terms of reaching that world record, I think we've we've seen already there are athletes, there is at least one athlete right now who is capable of running faster than that. I mean, Kipchoge's in, in, in the span of six days. I mean, don't get me wrong, Kipchoge is amazing. We've said it. Take his first half, his first half of his marathon career and his second half. Those are the two best marathon careers in history. So he's so much beyond everyone else. But in the last six days, he's taken a hit because Evan Shabbat's winning at the same rate Kipchoge was. And now somebody looks like he can run faster. But, and his course record got broken in London. Yeah, but they... They... Um, there's been some interesting posts on the message board about, like, somebody was saying, like, these young guys, if they move to the roads, they don't have to relearn how to run. Like, they can just slam into the super shoe. And they said people used to... They didn't grow up with the super shoe, so they were racing a different way. Now you can run in a slightly different form. Um, you know, some guys are saying that they're expecting to see more 201s, etc. But there was one negative post from Shameless. This is the Kenyan doping template. Perform at a few low-level races, mostly 10Ks and half marathon. Number two, use the prize money to go crazy on an EPO and run a fast time. Start getting invitations to the World Marathon majors, maybe win one. Performance drops, but still cash in on the appearance fees. Do a bunch of DNFs or finally get caught. And then number six, start to coach your wife or younger brother or random cousin and repeat the whole process. 
Now, his performance certainly hasn't dropped off. And we did look it up. He is in the out-of-competition pool. So, to me, how do you prove you're clean? You stick with it for a long period of time. Yeah, absolutely. If he's Look, he's going to be scrutinized more than almost any athlete in the world over the next couple of years. People, they're going to be, the AIU is serious about getting the big names. They're going to go after them. If there's something to be found, they're going to do their best to find it. We know that you can't always catch every cheats, but he's going to be under a lot of scrutiny. If he keeps racing at a high level, you know, you obviously, you earn some benefit of the, you earn more credit doing that. But I think the other thing, Robert, I want to get to in a second here is this whole shoe situation, which is unrelated to the doping, but I think is quite fascinating as well. Yeah, one quick thing. You know, earlier I said at the beginning, he's either the greatest talent we've seen move to the marathon when they're young, or at least in the super share, or he's doping. What wasn't hinting at this, it also proves that either, I think that either not all Kenyans are on dope, or he's a, or he's a crazy marathon talent. Well, I already know not all Kenyans are doping. I mean, I guess we, I don't know that, but I already believed that. Okay. So. I guess that's not over. All right, let's talk about the shoe controversy. Why don't you explain to people, John, because we've been talking about it a lot on text messages between the three of us, but I don't think we've posted anything, written anything. Yeah, well, I've been getting a lot of DMs about this whole thing because it's pretty wild. A few days before the London Marathon, the Spanish, I think it's a website, it might be a magazine as well, Corridor, they post an article saying that Kiptum had signed a six-figure U.S. dollar contract with Kiodan. I'm no, I might be butchering the pronunciation there. Uh, a Chinese brand. Doesn't sponsor a lot of elite athletes. There are pictures of Kiptum wearing their gear, posing with some of their shoes from earlier this year. But then we get to London, and he's wearing the whole Nike Pro kit, and he raced in Nike stuff on Sunday when he won the race. And the Spanish article is essentially saying that he signed a contract with them, but they go to London, they go to Kenya, sort of check in with him, make sure everything's going smooth. They're going to fly with him to London. And this was going to be the big coming out party for Kiedan in the marathon. They've got a 201 guy, the third fastest man in history, He's running his world marathon major debut. And instead, he goes AWOL. They can't find him, can't get in contact with him. He's in London wearing Nike stuff. Kidan is furious because they're saying he breached the contract that he signed with them. But at the same time, there are the Times, Matt Lawton had a story today saying that he had signed a Nike deal back in January. So what it sounds like is this guy had two contracts at the same time. And I don't think any, well, Nike, he wore Nike stuff in the race on Sunday, but now Kiedon's saying, wait a minute, we signed this contract, we paid you money, you're not holding up your end of the deal. Corridor is saying that they're considering legal action against him. So it's a whole mess. I reached out to his agent, Mark Cautions, to understand the situation. He has not responded to me. All sorts of rumors are flying about, you know, what's going on, but Kiodan had people in London who were not happy about this, furious about this situation from what I've heard. And 
now we're trying to figure out like what happened here. I see Weldon smiling. Weldon, say the rumor. No, I don't, I don't want to say the rumor. Well, I don't want you to say the rumor because it's just a rumor. Say it, Weldon. I'm physically furious, John? It's just a rumor. I've tried to, I've tried checking that out with other people. I've heard that from one source, but it's a rumor. So the situation as I see it, he raced in Nike in Valencia, but it's his contract, I believe, was up at the end of 2022. Uh, it is not uncommon when that's happening for agents to shop around and try to find a new new deal. But many times, we learned this in the Boris Berrien case back in 2016, when you sign with a contract, when you sign with a, with a company, in this case Nike, they will have the right to match a deal that you get. I don't know if that clause was in his contract or not, but I'm guessing it was. It may not have even come to into effect here because if Matt Lawton's reporting is correct, if his source is saying he signed the deal in January, that may have been before he even agreed to this deal with the Chinese brand. But so I think Nike's probably understandably saying, well, hey, wait, we had the right, we signed you or we had the right to match and now you're going off with this Chinese brand you know, they, they have certain right. You know, I don't know exactly the details of his specifics of his contract, but what is clear here is that someone screwed up royal royally, either kept him himself or his management. I think his management certainly bl- deserves blame here because this is your job is to make sure that your athlete is representing one brand is to be, if you were shopping him around you get the best deal and you sign one deal. You shouldn't, you know, you got to understand how this, these contracts work. They don't come about out of this looking good. Kiptum doesn't come out of this looking good. He's still going to get paid at the end of the day, but I do wonder if he's going to have to pay back money to Kia Don. I can't imagine Nike's that happy that this situation arose, but in the end, he didn't he did end up winning the race in their kit. But it's just a whole mess. It's a very real mess of a situation, and someone made a huge mistake at some point or another. If this was the U.S., I feel like he could be sued for millions. Well, remember, Nike served Boris Berrien. They ended up dropping the case, but they essentially said when Berrien signed with New Balance, they claimed that he didn't, that they were going to match, and he wore this, the, Nike, the New Balance stuff regardless. They ended up dropping it because they think they would have taken a big PR hit, but Kiedon. This is essentially their biggest athlete. He could have won, won the London Marathon when actually I don't know what his shoes, what their shoes are like. Maybe they don't have the same super shoes as Nike, but this is the greatest performance of this guy's life. One of the greatest marathons we've ever seen. They think they're going to be sponsoring him for it. And then he doesn't do it. That's a lot. They've lost a significant amount of exposure there. So yeah, I, I've, I don't know. I don't think this situation it seems very messy. I'm not sure if it's over yet, if they're going to try to sue him because they may have a case. Well, props to Kyrgyz. Kyrgyz, whatever it's called. We'll link to them. I think they deserve some props for this Yes website says that they gave him 100 grand. I don't know if that was per year or up front or what. They had you know, but they were like this. They had identified this guy. They're like this guy's the future, and it's rare for a company, you know, to bet really big on a sort of. I mean, I shouldn't say unproven Kenyan athlete, but 
I'm kind of more intrigued about what their shoes are about and this sort of stuff now. And but you can't have two contracts at once. So the athlete or the agent, somebody really screwed up here. Or maybe Kierden, I guess. Maybe they didn't cross their I's and dot their T's. Maybe they didn't. Maybe Nike had some first refusal thing. Who knows what the story is? Well, if I'm him, I claim like. You know, I, I signed this under duress. I didn't know what I was doing. I'm not a sophisticated business person. I didn't have my lawyer present if he did sign with the Chinese firm. I didn't know that I had to give Mikey the opportunity to match. And then, you know, in America, you could probably get it thrown out by that way. If you don't have proper legal, legal representation in Kenya, you can probably get anything thrown out. But, I mean, he, we, 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 John keeps saying he came out of nowhere, but I'm looking at my Bovada account right here. I mean... I knew who he was. What? I put them. I put the max back down. Two hundred dollars on Kelvin Kipton, eleven to. Four. Robert, are you are you intentionally being moronic here? We knew who he was before London. He ran freaking two hundred one. I picked him to win the race on Friday okay. for that very reason. I said we're totally overthinking this. The guy closed in sixty fifteen. He might be an insane talent. He. No one is arguing he was unknown before the London Marathon. Supporters club members. 12 hours before every race call 1-800-BET-ROJO, 1-800-BET-ROJO. I'll give you my picks. Another $750 profit. I did lose out on the women's race. I picked Perez, Joe Chipcher, and Y squared. I ruled out Bridget Koskai and John's inside information. But... It wasn't inside information. She said it in a pup press conference, and I reported on it. But anyway, the one other thing I would say about Kiodon, well then, yeah, I, I guess it's nice to have more brands putting money in, but I will just say, do you know the history behind this brand? Kidon, I've never heard of it before. Their, their name is essentially the Chinese pronunciation of Jordan. And their logo is similar to the Michael Jordan, Jordan brand logo. And they were involved in sort of a case over, over that, like, you know, a legal battle over that. And I think they ended up having to pay some money. So the origin of their brand is a little bit questionable, I would say. Even better. Even better. It sounds like Jordan. This is great. If it's legal in China, Nike's going wants to compete. Nike kowtows to China anyway. Let's, let's deal with some of their own medicine now. But, okay, the betting thing, Robert, we all three picked him to win on the Supporters Club podcast. So everyone who made money, and then Bovada offered lines because we told them to offer lines. So everyone who made money on this race, you can thank us. And granted, we didn't think Stefana San would win, but we told everyone that Bridget Koskai was out. That's like was she was like thirty percent to win, twenty five percent, something like that. So take her out, and you could make a lot of money betting everyone else in the field. So your supporters club membership is paying for itself. You could have bet you bet the men's race and bet the women's race, you still made money. So everyone, hopefully your wallets are doing well. Those of you who lost, remember betting's just for fun. It's just for fun. All right, any final London notes? I mean, I guess I want to mention that Jeffrey Camor, I thought it was fun to see him in the mix again. He was the guy, he really tried to go with Kiptum, and I understand why he couldn't because Kiptum was running so fast, but Camor hung in there, 204.23, personal best. He was in such a good mood after the race. He was like, yeah, it's been really tough the last couple of years, but thought his training had been going really well since the start of the year. He says he wants to run the Olympic marathon next year. He said this was a you know, it was a statement showed that he was back. And I was like, that, that's great. Cause Jeffrey Camor, he's one of the, he's really exciting to watch at his best. 
one of the sport's great talents. So that was fun to see him in this race. Also, we need to give a shout out Emil Caress of Great Britain. A lot of the attention, including myself, I'm guilty of this. I kind of overlooked him a little bit. Was on Mo Farah, who ended up ninth in two ten twenty eight. Farah went out ahead of Caress, but then Emil Caress, who is coached by Renato Canova, he runs him down. Runs two hundred eight oh seven in his debut. He was on track for two. 207 until late and then i talked to him after the race and i said wow you know 20807 in your debut you got the olympic stand you got to be happy about that and he's just like eh. you know he, he thought he made a mistake tactically from 30 35k went a little bit too hard he fell off the pace late and he was like you know he wanted to run 207 he, his big his dream goal was sub 207 so i liked his attitude but i also think i mean 2807. You don't see many Americans debut faster than that. This guy did have. He's run fast track times. He was second at Eurocross last year. But he debuted faster than Connor Mance. We hype up Connor Mance all the time, and he's run faster on the track. He's NCAA cross country champion. Well, he just ran nine seconds faster than Connor Mance in his debut, and he's younger than Conor Mance as well. And what I appreciate from Caress is he said he wants to make his debut now because he thinks his physical peak is going to be around 30. And a lot of times he believes when you're at your physical peak in the marathon, you might not be at your mental peak in terms of having race experience, knowing what to do, knowing how to respond to moves. So he's like, look, I'm going to get into the marathon now when I'm not quite at my physical peak. And ideally, then I'll be able to once I am at my physical peak in the marathon, I'll also have the experience to really capitalize, which I think is a smart approach. So very bright future for this guy. And I think he ran a smart, you know, he said he went a little bit hard, but I think in general is a smart, impressive race on, on Sunday. John left out the most important aspect of him. The reason why he's doing better than Connor Mance is, I don't think Connor Mance has ever gotten his training advice from the let's run.com forums. Before London, Emil was on a podcast, and he said he used to get his training ideas from the forum. So I thought we should have him on the podcast. Do, do I? Can I take credit for him since he's learning from my forums? I therefore coached him to two hundred eight hundred seven. <laughs> By the way, anyone in California, you guys better watch out. The team John Kellogg is coaching remotely finished well this year. Is the head coach on the boots on the ground in California? Told me they're going to win the state title in two years. But the other Susanna Sullivan, the American, did she run two twenty five? John, did we ever figure out what the top British woman was on the Friday fifteen? I was saying how bad the British women were. Yeah, the top British woman was. Oh, I guess. Oh, Susanna Sullivan was the top American two twenty four. Was actually her PR. The top British woman wasn't that far behind. It was Samantha Harrison. Sorry, Samantha Harrison, two twenty five fifty nine, which was a six minute PR for her. So she was eleventh overall. Sullivan was tenth. But you're you're bashing the UK field. The reality is, the UK isn't as deep in the women's marathon as it is in is the as the US is in the women's marathon. But also, many of the top Brits were scheduled to run this. Charlotte Perdue, Jess Piasecki, and Ailish McColgan all slated to run it. All of them had to pull out. So, I mean, what do you want to say? 
we were supposed to have Kira D'Amato and Emily Sisson running this race, top two Americans, and they pulled out. So injuries happen. London put together a good British field, and it just didn't come together. Well, I know Emily didn't get to run this race, but she's a big winner. To see the top women in the world struggling to break 218, I know it's rainy, but she's probably thinking, I can't run 215. But, I mean, Molly Seidel got a medal. Now you see how it's possible. But there was some controversy. We talked about 11th place women's finisher. On the men's side, what do you guys think about this? I think it's a disgrace. Former Boston Marathon champion Yuki Kawaguchi had to start behind the elites. He had to start in the mass field. He ran the 11th fastest time. He's not listed in the finishers. And I think this is a disgrace. London, they have a rule that you can't run a marathon like so many days before the race because, I don't know, they or after the race, maybe both. They don't want you to like stack appearance fees. But Yuki Kawauchi races all the damn time. Let him start with the elites. This is disgraceful. Agree. The rule like that, I do understand the rule because you want to protect your elite field. You don't want them getting hurt or something like that or showing up out of shape or too tired to run. But Yuki is Yuki. You just use some common sense in this situation and say, okay, the rule doesn't apply to him because we've seen him run these top times very close together. I agree with you, Robert. It's it's unfortunate this had to happen, and good for you, Kiva, still running a, a good race. One other thing about Emil Karras, he did all that without wearing a super shoe. It's being said on the forum that he ran the Takuma Sen 9 instead of the Adizero Pro 3. Yeah, from what I understand, those shoes are still fairly cushioned, but they don't have the same stack height as the Adizero Pro, which is what Evans Chabet just wore to win Boston. All right. Speaking of, well, I guess we really weren't speaking about sponsors until we mentioned Adidas. But one other thing from the London Marathon is this Ailish McColgan situation. So she announced two days before the race she was going to withdraw. She's had a knee injury that didn't come around in time. But then she put out a statement on Instagram also saying, that she wasn't even sure she was going to be able to run due to a sponsor clash. And I immediately start thinking about shoes. She's ASICs and London's a New Balance race. But I'm like, wait a minute. No major marathons don't let other athletes from competing brands run. Like if you did that, you would have very limited, narrow fields. So McColgan then clarifies, no, it's actually about another sponsor of hers, SIS, which is a hydration like fueling sponsor essentially science and sport science and sport they she wore their logo on the top right of her jersey at the Berlin half marathon earlier this month and you're allowed to wear two small logos like that she has her asics on one shoulder she's got sis on the other shoulder but she's being said she said that she was told she would not be able to run because sis clashes with the official you know hydration sponsor of the london marathon which is lucasade and she has you know she said she would take more questions about it later on this press call with media she had limited time but 
I was like, wait a minute. She was going to be banned because she can't wear this one logo on her shoulder. I can't remember this being a big deal before that if you have a secondary sponsor that clashes with a secondary sponsor of a road race, you're not allowed to run that before. This is the first time I can remember this being a big issue. I think it's frankly ridiculous. LucasAid is going to get their money's worth. Are they the ones putting their foot down? Is it the London Marathon? We ha- It hasn't actually been clear. Hugh Bracia, the race director, was asked about this, and he said, you know, they're going to have discussion with Ailish pri- privately. But to me, this is ridiculous. You shouldn't be preventing... Athletes should not be prevented from running races because of a sponsor on their shoulder. We always talk about athletes trying to get their fair worth and getting paid. I just don't think this is a good move for the sport if this is going to be a pattern going forward. Okay, John, there's an update here with an article in the Times of London. Hugh Brasher has a quote saying, World Athletics brought in new rules only a year ago where athletes are allowed two logos on their vest. We allow that. We allow it as long as they are not competing sponsors. Our sponsors are usually signed years in advance. We know what we are doing. Integrity is really important to us and really important to her. Can misunderstandings occur? Yes, they can. We all have to work together. The reason we could pay amazing appearance fees, amazing time bonuses, amazing price money is because we look holistically at what is going on. I'm sorry. If World Athletics rules say you can wear two sponsors, they enforce these rules on the athletes. It needs to be you can wear any two sponsors. That's what the unless the rule right now in place says you can exclude excluding sponsor. No, Robert, athletes need to be able to, to have a, more of a say in this stuff. If she has a s- separate logo on her shoulder, who cares? Everybody go out and buy science and sport. Check it out. I just applaud them. Obviously, like the Wanted Mar- Marathon does great things sponsoring these athletes, but like, come on. Like, it's a tiny logo on an athlete's vest. Like, we give athletes very little rights. That if you can wear two logos, it should be any two logos. That space is for the athletes. Everything else is for the race. This story it doesn't interest me at all, but if we're going to be for athletes' rights, then let's rip up the entire USATF contract. What do you mean? Why are they forced to wear a Nike vest? Why can't they just wear a damn USA vest and then put their own logo? You give them a blank USA jersey, and they can it. iron on their own logo. The athletes in swimming and gymnastics don't have to wear the vest of the thing. It's considered personal equipment. So, like, we're talking about athletes' rights. Let's go all the way, according to Weldon, then. Why is he just focusing on this one issue? No, you don't need to go all the way. There is room for nuance in this debate. Nike is paying a shit ton of money to fund the entire sport, essentially. In, at USATF to fund a significant, well, not the entire sport, but to fund a significant portion of USATF's budget. One of the Do- things they're getting in return is exclusive jersey rights. I actually don't have a problem with them getting that because they're paying so much money. You've got to offer them something in return. That's one of the big things is to have your logo on the jerseys of Team USA athletes. You sound like a fool. If you're athletes' rights, you're athletes' rights and go all the way. Like, LucasAid no. is paying the London Marathon a lot of money to get the sponsorship, and it's part of their deal. So it's the same damn argument. And if if Nike didn't get hundreds of millions of dollars worth of exposure on the U.S. kits, they wouldn't be paying the overpaid Max Siegel $3 million a year. So if the if you got rid of the Nike sponsorship, USATF's finances would be in trouble. 
But the athletes' individual contracts theoretically would be worth more because when they got to the Olympics, their kit would be on the emblem. So it would compensate itself out. These there are two different situations, and the idea that you can't see any nuance at all in this situation, Robert, is you ridiculous can't see to the me. Nuance. No, it's can ridiculous. you not understand, Ailish McColgan? It's not that she would is replacing a LucasAid logo with an SIS logo. She has got an SIS logo where it would either be SIS or nothing. She's not kicking out like LucasAid. Okay, they're not getting now. They have no longer have exclusive rights to any sort of hydration type thing on the course, but. There wasn't a LucasAid logo there before that's being replaced by SIS. I do understand that they negotiated this contract with London before these new rules came into effect, and there might need to be some sort of period where they kind of figure out what the new landscape's going to look like in terms of those rules coming to effect. I actually, I think Luke Hugh Bracia, the way he explained it, does make more sense to me now, and I still don't think it's the right solution to just to have an athlete not be able to compete because of this personal sponsor. But and London do put a lot of money into the sport. They do a lot of great things for the sport. So, you know, I don't want to totally bash them here. But I think this situation, Lucas Aid's still getting a lot of exposure. And if you're limiting it to two sponsors on the logos on the singlets of athletes, how many of them are going to be direct sponsor, direct com- competitors to Lucas Aid in an elite field? Maybe two or three. There could be all sorts of companies as that second sponsor. So I just think in this situation, you got to carve out some middle ground. I, I don't think it needs to be suddenly, oh, you're ripping up Nike's contract with USATF. Props to Eilish for speaking up. A lot of athletes, I think, would have been afraid to say something hack off the London Marathon. She got science and sport a lot more publicity than they would have. Who knows? LucasAid maybe even got more publicity, but they're not in America, so it doesn't really apply in our podcast. I'm glad she says something. Athletes, and who, but and also who needs who who more? I think the London Marathon needs her more. They want to have the top British woman. And while we're on famous Brits, this was Mo Farah's final major major race. Ninth place, two ten twenty eight. I think that's a good way for him to go out. Before I was like, oh, he needs to try to make the Olympics. No, it's over. This was a respectful race. Good for you. I kind of disagree with that. I mean, he look, he gave it a go, but this wasn't a good performance. He is used to being world-class, and 210, it just, it's not that great a run for him. He's run significantly faster in his career in other marathons. But he's 40 years old. And he certainly earned the right to give it a go and see if he could run one last great marathon. He couldn't. I don't have an issue with that, but I'm not saying like, and I'm glad that he did it in London. He was able to, he said the fans kept him going and he was able to run there, the city, which you know, he has lived in since he was, since he came to the United Kingdom and where was the scene of his greatest triumph. But I don't think this was an ideal way for him to leave. He would have much preferred to be more competitive. He didn't run well. What a downer, John. Farrah went out faster than Scott Fobble has ever gone out and basically ran the same time as Scott Fobble always runs. And when Fobble does it, you slobber all over him. But when Farrah does it, you rip him to shreds. Well, Scott Fobble actually ran faster. I mean, Scott Fobble has broken 210 a bunch of times. 
I didn't, and I said, did I criticize Mo Farah for the way he ran the race? No. I specifically said I actually commend him for giving it a shot. But he couldn't hold on. He didn't run well. He might have gotten, I mean, that might have been as good as he is right now. I don't fault him for like trying to run 207. He might just be like a 209 guy at the moment, but we got to, Scott Farbles never run like these, he's never run faster than 208. He's never finished higher than seventh in a major. Mo Farah's finished third in London. He's won a major. All right, enough London talk. Let's talk college track and field. Well, not college. Let's talk US track and field. The Oregon relays were last weekend. And the University of Oregon was not there. They were at the Peyton Jordan meet, which at Stanford, which has sort of lost its luster right after all of Sound Running's events. And yeah, Robert, I have a stat for you. Do you realize how many finishes the women's ten thousand meters at Peyton Jordan had? No, I've not um, followed that. This one finisher. This used to be the premier distance meet in the United States. The 10Ks, everyone would would have all the best athletes there hitting, sta- trying to hit standards. One finisher in the women's 10K at Peyton Jordan. I couldn't believe that. How fast, John? How many started? I believe there were only two starters. I think it was just... I believe there were just two finishers... Sorry, two starters, Lucy Jenks of Stanford, who seemed to be pacing, and then Sophie Murphy of Iona, who ran 34-28. That's it. I'm partial to the 10K on this site, but I think you just cancel it. Shout out to Federico Bruno of Argentina. This guy destroyed the 5,000. Won by 18 seconds in 13-11. Say Rodriguez won the 10,000-20-20. Anyways. No, I didn't want to talk about Stanford. I really want to talk about the Oregon Relays because we heard a number of months ago that they were going to spend money on pro teams and blah, blah, blah. Brooks Beach were going to be there. University of Washington was going to be there. And some Oregon teams were going to be there. Oregon pro teams were going to be there going for the 4 by mile world record. That didn't really happen. The Beasts ran a 4 by 8 University of Washington is going to the pin relays this weekend. But there was a couple Oregon, it was an OTC all-star team with Matthew Centrowitz, Johnny Gregorak. Who are the other two guys, Jim? Charlie Hunter and Sam Prickle. Add up their lifetime PBs and it's well under 1549.08, which is the world record just since 1985. Now, technically, if they broke it, it wouldn't be a world record. It'd be a world's best because they're not all from the same country. But I'm glad I didn't stay up to watch this one. Eric Sawinski's rabbiting the first lap. They go out in 58. Matthew Schindler is running the opening leg. There's another team, some Oregon guys, Oregon pros. With what, Kieran Lum on it? They slow down when he stops rabbiting. They run like a 62. And then, like, Schindler can only run. He comes home. He gets dropped by Lum. Like, he runs 404 in the mile. Only one guy in the entire race broke four in any leg. It was a total flop from the very beginning. And I was stunned by this. Like, I always say talent never goes away. But is it ever going to come back for Centrowitz? Is it ever? Like, he ran 403 in the mile in December on the roads. Now, I think that 
mile and Hawaii might be a little bit fast. But January, February, March, April, we're almost five months later. He's now running 404 on a track mile, rabbited. He ran 406 in Australia. Like, what's going on here? What's going on is exactly what I told you was going to go on. This was never going to be close. These sort of world record attempts. I told you guys on the podcast last week, I said, they're not going to come close to this. These sort of things fizzle. You need to be in a lot better shape than if you have to average 357, you have to be faster than that because you're running alone. I never thought they would be close. And you're saying, okay, Centro ran 404. Okay, shit, he had a rabbit, but... Johnny Gagaric, who made the world's team last year, only ran 403. Are we suddenly going to be digging, putting dirt on his career? I just don't put that much stock into a four by mile relay in April. This wasn't a great run for Matthew Centrowitz, but I'm just really not putting that much stock into it. John, Johnny Gagoric's running alone on the anchor leg. That's a completely different thing. Here he's running with Kieran Lum. Who ran 3:52? I mean, I guess Kieran Law. I guess the good news for Centrowitz is Kieran Law, who ran 3:52 in the mile indoors, only ran 4:01. It did not look particularly windy to me when I watched the replay. I was just stunned how bad these guys were, and I, I thought Centrowitz would by now. I thought 4:03 in December was fine. I'm like, okay, he'll be running, you know, 3:56 by now, at least be somewhat competitive at USA's. He said it's all about 2024. I mean, I guess it's it's a good sign to me that he's healthy enough to be racing. And consistently training, and maybe it's just going to take a while, and then eventually, all of a sudden, things click and it comes down quickly. But so far, it's it, it's not good. I mean, I still have some concerns. Don't get me wrong, but I just these record attempts, the four by mile, they're always harder than you think they're going to be, and their splits. They, if you told me these were their splits going in, I'd be like, yeah, that's it's not that surprising. And Sam Prakel, who was the WS champion doors. He only split 359. You think Sam Brakel is going to be close to that come July? No, he's going to be significantly faster. He was significantly faster indoors this year. It's just not the environment to run a super fast time. John, you're bringing in some good points. Because I don't ever want to write off Centrowitz, and now I really don't have to. And this whole thread brings me to the post of the week. My poster not holding my breath. And there was a thread on this four by mile world record attempt beforehand. And the poster said, this is like my buddy Mikey approaching a 10 out of 10 at the bar. He's welcome to take a shot, but we all know how this ends. 139 upvotes, two downvotes. Good thing I didn't see it. I might have downvoted because I was saying, oh, they, they got a good shot at coming close to this record. They didn't even come anywhere close. So the poster should have been logged in. They would have gotten some free Let's Run.com gear. But and good luck, Mikey. Keep your head up. Keep trying. Central Woods is going to go back out there. Well, I guess the fact that the record is only 1549 and it had like a bunch of studs on it, like Ray Flynn or whatever, is kind of surprising. But they were 18 seconds off, which I guess is only four and a half seconds per mile. This weekend on Saturday, I guess the four-by-mile at Penn, John's got the lineup. I know Princeton alum Sam Ellis is on it. Joe Wascom's on it. 
Is According the to entries, yeah, the NCAA mile champ, Luke Hauser, and then Nathan Green. That's Washington's lineup. But Oklahoma State also running this, the DMR champs. They've got Fouad Masaudi, the NCAA 3K champ, who beat Joe Wascom in a 1500 a couple weeks ago. Ryan Sharpie, then Christopher Middleton Pearson, and Isaiah Pretty. So Could we I'm not see- sure about those other legs, but... Yeah, Washington. I also I was texting with Andy Powell about this. I was like, "Are you going to be able to enter two at two leg teams in this?" Because I feel like the Washington B team would beat most other schools' A teams, but they're only allowed one entry. And apparently, I don't think they're going to be chasing the collegiate record. I think they're just going to be racing for the win. But she'll should still be a great race, regardless. I know they have a really deep team, but I'm not writing off Oklahoma State. I mean, if Masaudi's there, we know how good that guy is. But where's on? Remember last year, the On Athletics Club was there. And for some reason, Steve Dolan, the pen coach, said they could never combine the pros and the college races together, which I think they should do. Could we see the first ever sub 16? The collegiate record is 16.03. Check out this team Matthew Centrowitz, 359, Andrew Weeding, 359, Shadrick Bewatt, 405, and Galen Rupp, 358. So three of the four arrogant legs. Broke four. I don't know where that race was, John. I think they did that at Haywood Field, right? The Penn Relays record is 16.04. I believe that was the year my Cornell team was third. Andrew Ellison, 405. Mike Woods, 403. Nick Willis, 356. And Nate Brandon, 359. I'd love to see a sub-16, but... That for sure we'd see it this year. At least 3.52 miles. You heard it here first, folks. It will not happen on Saturday at 1.20 p.m. Eastern because I hated John's negative takedown last week. I guess he was right, but I've got my substandard weather app here, not dark sky. Doesn't the Apple weather app use this all the same stuff as dark sky? Didn't they just buy dark sky and absorb it into their app? It's not good. I thought about buying, just ditching Apple completely for Samsung. Support Korea versus China. Weldon told me I needed to keep FaceTime so I can FaceTime the family. Plus, I heard Apple's going to USB-C, which might save them. Anyway, Saturday, steady light rain in the morning. Showers continuing in the afternoon. High around 65. Winds east 10 to 20 miles per hour. That's the problem with Penn. The weather is often so bad in Philadelphia. They put it last year, right? The pro race at night. They should move this to Thursday night if you're going to go for the sub-16. But I'm glad that it's more about tradition. I wonder if well, why Penn decided to go there and not Oregon Relays. I, I see why some people don't like Penn because, to be honest, standing in the paddock when it's freezing cold kind of sucks from a performance standpoint. But it's just what you do. Yeah, I resp- I think it's great that Washington, we talk about their mile core the whole year. It's awesome they're flying out to run there. It's also awesome Oklahoma State, who has often gone to Drake in the past, is going to be there. They- you got Virginia, Georgetown, Wisconsin, Villanova. I mean, this is going to be a fantastic race. I'm really excited they're all going to Penn. This is how the sport should be. Props to everyone for going out there and fielding strong teams. I guess on the Friday 15 this week, bonus podcast, we can talk about Penn. Some of it will have already happened. Yeah, I mean, you've got Gary Martin for UVA. You've got a stacked Georgetown team. Wow, look, look right here. Is he back? The Let's Run intern. 
Call Winter of Syracuse? He's been struggling his post-grad year. Heart ailment. Knocked him out of the ACC cross-country and indoor meets. But he's listed here. Now, you have to move the pin entry so long ago. Maybe he was interested in I hope he's running. Wait, he's struggling. He went sub four for the first time. We had a guy finally go sub four. We should have him on the podcast that week. Okay, we'll talk more Penn on Friday and the Friday 15. How about some high school track? This is also kind no. of high school and pro. Well, what about Caitlin Tui? Don't we need to finish that up first? I, I guess so. Caitlin Tui, who everyone thinks should go pro, is not even the best runner in North Carolina. Now, that's a negative way to say it, but she didn't lose to a collegian. She lost to a North Carolina-based pro over the weekend. Yeah, she finished third in the Wake Forest Invitational 1500 behind Constance Klosterhofen, who has left the Nike Union Athletics Club and is now part of Puma Elite, the Alistair Craig, Amy Craig coach team in North Carolina. Klosterhofen won at 406, then Angel Picarillo second, 407, Caitlin Tui third, 408. She was still more than three seconds ahead of the top collegiate. Uh, I mean, it's not as impressive as the time she ran indoors, but 408 is still a good time for a collegian. I don't think this is the event she's going to be focusing on. I know she's been trying to work on her speed, but I mean, Coco at her best is a re- really fantastic runner. you got to remember that. She's run 358 for 1500. Grind, that was a few years ago. Uh, I, I don't think it's any shame to get beat. I mean, she was second at Euro indoors this year. I don't think it's any shame to lose to her in a 1500. So, yeah. She got beat by a better runner. That's okay. It happens. But losing to Angel Piccarillo is more concerning to me. Losing to Coco, that's fine. But I'd be more concerned if she ran slowly. I mean, 408, I know it's a couple seconds slower than what she ran last year, but I don't think that's a bad time. I'm not too worried about this result. It's 1500, it's April. It's she needs to be ready in June and July. This this result's okay. If we're expecting her to go out and blast, I mean, maybe you do have an expectation she's going to go out and blast it every race because that's what she was doing indoors. She was just setting collegiate records left and right. But I feel like that's a very high standard to hold someone to. I don't consider this a bad race. I just think it's about it's pretty much average. Yeah, it's not even worth mentioning this race. Coco should beat her in a 1500. She did. She lost to a world championship medalist. Caitlin Tui isn't at that level right now. But can we turn to this high school race? Yes, this was... I mean, if London wasn't happening, I think we'd be freaking out about this right now. It's crazy that it's taking us this long to get to it, but... Isam Asinga of Montverde Academy in Florida. That's a high school, people. Yeah, he's 18 years old. He was born in December of 2009. He shows up to the Pure Athletics meet in Claremont. That's Noah Lyles' club. They stage this meet. And in the 100 meters, he goes 9.86 in the prelims, windy. That's a 4.1 wind. Then the final, 9.83, the 
The wind was 2.6, so a little over the legal limit. Second place, a guy by the name of Noah Lyles, the reigning 200-meter world champion, former Diamond League champion in the 100 meters. Well back in second at 9.92. So if you put these times into the conversion calculator, a singer's time is worth 9.95 in still conditions or 9.86 with a 2.0 tailwind, which is the maximum. This is, I think there's a case to be made, this is the greatest 100 meters ever run by a high school athlete in the United States. No one's ever broken 10 sub win legal. This guy, if he gets in the right conditions, now the Claremont track is known for being fairly fast, but it's not just how fast you ran, it's who he beat. He beat a 19-3 guy in 100, and it wasn't that close. He beat the reigning world champion. This guy's a high school senior. My mind is blown by how good Isama Singer is. I think the big question now is, does he turn pro immediately? And who does he represent internationally? Because I believe he's eligible to represent the US, Suriname, and Zambia. And he will have to pick between one of those three. If you're the world's fastest man, it almost doesn't matter what country you're from. You're going to make a ton of money. But to me, the US seems like the obvious choice. Harder to make the teams, but wouldn't there be a lot more money if you're pretty darn good? But I guess that's an agent's job to figure out. But this guy ran 10-10 last year. And what I loved more than, you know, to, to me instantly, I saw this result and I'm like, all right. That's it for Noah Lyles. Can we, can we stop this nonsense of 100, 200, double. If you're, if you're getting worked by a high schooler, you're not winning the 100-meter world title. And you're also not going to break Usain Bolt's 200-meter world record. I know he's close to it, but come on. Bolt's not losing to a high schooler. So unless the shoes have totally changed everything, this dude's dreams were quashed on April 22nd or whenever the damn race was. Oh God. Robert, you're the king of the overreaction here. Do, do you not remember a few months ago, January 20th, Noah Lyles shows up, indoor meet in Gainesville. He finishes third in 660 in the 60. He loses to his brother, Josephus, who he never loses to. He lost to Kendall Williams. The next week, he shows up. He beats Trayvon Bromel, one of the fastest starters in the world, in a 60 meters. He runs 651. Noah Lyles, I'm sure he did not enjoy getting beat by a high school kid. But Noah Lyles also has, a his, historically, has been able to perform his best on the biggest stages. I know the Olympic Games he didn't, but that whole year he was... Okay, that that was the one year where he didn't do it. But the last two world championships, he's gotten it done, especially last year. He timed things absolutely perfectly. Now he gets beat in 100 in April, and you're freaking out and saying this is the end of the world? I'm not. Is he? I didn't think. I mean, I think winning the hundred at Wells this year was already going to be a tall task for him. I probably wouldn't have picked him. But am I going to say immediately he can't do it just because he lost one race? Yes, he lost to a high schooler. The high schooler is also really effing fast. The high schooler could have run. The high schooler ran nine eight three. Robert, anyone in the world running nine eight three is a pretty good hundred meters. So I'm not going to panic all that much just because. Lyle's lost a race four months out from the race he really cares about. That's why we have you, John, for the facts. Making me feel like my take was a little bit too hard. So 
when Knighton was in high school last year? Erin Knighton, yes, was a high school last year. And if you remember, he ran his fastest time of the year, 19.49, at the end of April. He never ran fast the entire year. And he got beat by Noah Lyles when it mattered the most. So I guess he did lose to high school and did pretty well. Okay. I take it all back. But what I liked the best about this was, and I'm trying to find it because I'm not an expert on Instagram. Isn't that where you found it, John? I saw this popped up on Twitter, I thought. I've I've got it right here, Robert. I saw this on a let's run.com thread titled More Sprint Beef. Lyles takes on ISOM. And it says after Isama Singa had his win over Lyles, Lyles had a post on Instagram recapping the meet. Only he made no mention of Isam, which left the comment section roasting Lyles, many of which were like, dude, you got rolled by a high schooler. Lyles, clearly offended by the comments, made a comment of his own saying, I'll say this once. Isama Singa is very talented and he is peaking for stage, which is coming soon. I'm peaking for Worlds on August 19th. And in response to that, I do have this post. It's still up there. Isam posted, For anyone wondering, Budapest has always been the goal. And you missed the point that he said that he is no longer running his high school season. This is epic. This is great. I love the beat between Fred Curley and... Marcel Jacobs, and now we have Noah Lyles in this high school. His high school was focused on Budapest. His coach had already said, we're focusing, seeing how far we can go at Worlds. So if he's focused to see how far he can go at Worlds, that sounds to me like he wasn't planning on running for the U.S. Because could he really thought he was going to make the U.S. team when the U.S. went 1-2-3 at the Worlds last year? But if I'm him, go pro immediately. But just for context, the Title of this article he linked to, and for anyone wondering, it says Montverde Academy's top stars to forgo Florida State series. So he's not peaking for the state meet, which is what Lyles asserted. Doesn't say he's going pro. He's committed to Texas A&M. You can forgo the state meet without turning professional immediately. But I also say Noah Lyles knows how to be racing fast deep into July and August, which a singer hasn't proven he can do yet. I'm really excited to see what he can do. But I think Lyles, Lyles had the same reaction I did. Noah Lyles is getting ready for the big one, and he's not going to be overly concerned with losing in April. And he shouldn't be. But Isama Singa, mega talent, I can't wait to see what he does the rest of the year. I just think for an 18-year-old to maintain their form all the way into August when you're already running very fast in April... We saw it last year with Arian Knighton. And that was a guy who already got fourth in the Olympics. Knighton did it in 2021, but he couldn't do it in 2022. It's really tough to do. I stand corrected by Asinga. He did not run 10-10 last year. 10-10 was his best win legal time this year. Last year, he was in Missouri running 10-44. They actually ran that at altitude in Albuquerque on June 4th. And the other thing we haven't mentioned, we mentioned this, I think, maybe in an earlier podcast. But this guy indoors broke the 200-meter high school record, tied the 60-meter record. And his dad, Tommy, was an NCAA runner-up at 800 meters. So clearly this guy's in the wrong event. He needs to move up immediately. 
Well, actually, speaking of that, I don't know if you saw this Michael Johnson tweet from a few days ago, but he was talking about some of the workouts he did. And he would say he would do repeat 200s all the time. He would start in the fall and it would be a little slower and have more rest. And then it would gradually come down. You get fewer rest and it would get faster. The week before the 1996 Olympics, this was his workout, four by 200 in 22 seconds each with one minute 30 second recovery between each rep. And I saw that. I'm like, holy shit, I really, really want to know we could run the 800 right now. Because we, we know that took him to an Olympic title in the 400. That wasn't his world record year. That was 99. But that was right before he won the 200 and the 400 at the 96 Olympics. But I'm looking at that. If you can run four times 222 seconds and you're only getting 90 seconds rest, you've got to be able to go like mid-140s in the 800 at that time, right? Robert, as a former HEPS-winning middle-distance coach, can you offer your insight here? No, I cannot. I wasn't listening to what you were saying. I'm too much down the rabbit hole of the Asinga parents. Tommy, the dad, was a three-time Olympian, 88, 92, and 96 for Suriname, ran for Eastern Michigan. The mother, that's where he's getting the sprint genes from. Nogisa. Moana Mwambawa, a singer. She went to the Olympics as well for Zambia in 92 and 96. She was also a Division III NCAA champion. It says that the dad lives in Zambia and is a vet- veterinarian. So was he living in I'd love to see a story where he's born. Like, how, how long has he been in the U.S.? Like, are we sure he can run for the U.S.? He was born here. Oh, because his parents were over here competing. Yeah. Hmm. I'm gonna have to say though, without even listening to it, John, that Michael Johnson would not have been good at the 800. Well, the workout he did was four by 200 in 22 seconds each with 90 seconds rest. That's a pretty good workout for an 800 guy, right? It's probably, but my coaching guru, John Kellogg's out on a bike ride right now. I can't ask him. We'll do it before. So you're being day. exposed by a fraud here as a fraud. John, you're I, only as good I, as John Kellogg. No, I'm yes. I'm just like the human interface for chat GPT. He's the chat GPT <laughs> and I present, I make sure that it's accurate. I, I, you have to have some knowledge to make sure that it's not just making stuff up. And then I present it in the way, you know, sometimes you actually have to change the facts that it's, presentable for the masses to understand i see you're the interpreter sort of the interpreter of the holy scripture speaking of which i don't think john is a tends church that often if ever don't want to go personal here but we, we probably should have said this when we were talking about uh kelvin kipton i mean there's no way the guy's a doper right in valencia i was watching some highlights this weekend, him running in Valencia, it was amazing. When he took off, I think he was stunned that he was winning his, his debut marathon in 201. He multiple times did the cross on himself. So I was like, this is cool. This guy's like, holy shit, I'm just about to drop all these 203 guys in my first marathon. God help me. I thought it was really cool. Like, he's nervous as shit. Let's go. So I thought that was cool. That's why I like him. I hope he's clean. Hope we didn't offend too many people talking about it. 
And if he's not clean, can, can, can his supplier please contact me? Because I need it in my old age. Like, my God. When I, I'll break three on that shit. Give me some of that rocket fuel. Now, John, is there any stipulations about my lifetime breaking three? Do I have to be drug legal or am I allowed to? I reserve the right to, off the your race, arrange a post-race drug test if you break three hours. I'm not saying I will, but I... I'm going to keep that looming threat just to keep you honest, Rojo. That sounds like for me, I'm allowed to dope out of competition, but on the day of, so I can use the steroids and the APO. I'm, I'm look, I'm, I'm not going to make you adhere to the whereabouts system, but I might, I might decide to test you at some of these world championships ahead of the media 800. Oh, I, I might show up in your, at your door at six 30 in the morning and demand that you pee in front of me. Okay. You know? so I, I, I'm not supposed to do yeah, no doping. Alter G, I need a treadmill because I, w- I want to put on like 80% body weight. So I, that would be like what I would presumably, presumably be running if I lost 30 pounds. And then I need a shoe sponsor because I don't think my new shoe is coming out by then. Maybe this the Chinese company has got some extra money. All right, did we get to everything we need to, John? Weldon seems to have been gone. Weldon, there's a Crystal Palace game going right now. So he, that might be what he's doing. I don't want to talk about the non-binary results that paid out $2,500 for somebody running a 243 marathon. So don't talk about it. We don't need to. Just want to get that out there. Yeah, we hit everything. This was the London Marathon recap. We talked about London and then some. But if you enjoy the show, you'll enjoy the second show on Friday. Or you can daily get debate like this on the Let's Run.com forums. Whose run was less believable, Hassan or Kiptum's? Kelvin Kiptum himself coached. How about talk about the 59-year-old who was the second American in London? I haven't even read that. That's impressive, though. If a 59-year-old can be the second American in London, that means I can break three. All right. Until Friday, everybody, or Tuesday, if you're too cheap, we're signing off.